Today, I'm talking with somebody very special, Ellen Gable Herkash, a veteran homeschooler I've known a long time, who knows a thing or two about how authentic love in your marriage blesses your children. Stay with us. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hi, I'm your host, Lisa Maladnik, and today's topic is so rich, how authentic love in your marriage blesses your children. And we're talking with an expert on all things Catholic and romantic, whom I've known for many years. Uh, Today's guest is Ellen Gable Herkash. She's an award-winning author of 10 books, four of which have been translated into multiple languages. She's also an editor, self-publishing book coach, speaker, publisher, NFP teacher, book reviewer, theology of the body teacher, marriage preparation instructor, and former president of the Catholic Writers Guild. However, the roles that she enjoys most are as grandmother to one precious grandson, wife to her husband of 37 years, James, and mother to their five adult sons, ages 20 to 32. Originally from uh, New Jersey, she's not far from where we are here on Long Island, she and her husband live in the country in Pakenham, Ontario, Canada. And you can find Ellen online at ellengable.wordpress.com. That's E-L-L-E-N-G-A-B-L-E dot WordPress, W-O-R-D-P-R-E-S-S dot com. Ellen, thanks for making time to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Lisa. (laughs) You know, um, I've known you for a long time. And I've run into you and James together at conferences. You do a lot in the Catholic world. You've been real leaders in the Catholic world in the areas of uh, sexuality and NFP and all of that, but also with your beautiful book publishing efforts. And um, the joy of your relationship is just palpable. And when you're not with James, uh, you're always so quick to talk about James. Um, (laughs) How important is it to be each other's booster and best friend? Very important. Um, (laughs) I know a lot of people who say that, you know, your spouse is your best friend is a cliche. (laughs) But, you know, if you actually don't enjoy being around your spouse, you're not going to have a happy marriage. Exactly. And, And for us, NFP, natural family planning, which we have used our entire lives and because of illness, We've had quite a bit of experience in abstaining um, from marital relations for long periods of time. I was ill after one of my pregnancies. It's kind of blurry now, but it was a nine-month abstinence. uh, And it was difficult for both of us. But, you know, during those periods, we focus. We focus on... um, how much we enjoyed being together. I remember, like, we still play games and, um, you know, word games, take walks in the park, um, take, well, actually, we just have to walk out our our front door here and we could take a walk in the country. So, you know, and we would focus on that part of our relationship when there was, you know, when the physical wasn't there. And, and we still enjoy uh, being together and he loves to make me laugh uh, <laughs> but he never does it when I ask him to it's always <laughs> he always does it off the cuff so people don't they can't hear how wonderful a Kermit the Frog impression he does 
But um, anyway, someday we'll get them to do that publicly. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. I would love that. You know, it's funny because many years ago, I remember talking to my mom about this. When she and my dad started practicing NFP, even though they had a beautiful relationship, it was a real romance. They were on each other's side. She wanted to be wherever he was. So she learned to camp and sail and all these things. She described herself as kind of a natural couch potato, but she got out there and did those things to be with him. And so she was, they really had a good friendship. But once they started to practice NFP and there were periods of abstinence, my mother said their, her trust in his love for her went through the ceiling. She knew that during those times, if he came up behind her while she was washing dishes and put his arms around her, that it was not a demand for anything. It was affection. And so even though she always knew he loved her, it just there, her confidence in his love for her really grew. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we still hold hands and, and things like that. Um, and just one other little example of, um, of this romance and best friend, uh, we were having a romantic dinner and our kids, I think our youngest had been born. He might've been maybe four, but our older kids were teenagers. So, um, (laughs) we would, set up the kitchen table with, I would feed the kids beforehand and then we would set up the kitchen table with candles and, and have a romantic dinner because it was the end of the abstinence and the beginning of our marital relations. And it it was really, um, I remember one of the kids walking in saying, oh, this must be the end of phase two and the beginning of phase three (laughs) or whatever. They had asked before why we were having these romantic dinners and I that's where we explain abstinence to them and um, the self-control needed when you're abstaining if you're avoiding pregnancy especially when I had health reasons to avoid pregnancy and and so that opened up all kinds of interesting conversations but (laughs) but yeah anyway I just wanted to share that little point Look at mom and dad not only practicing self-control out of respect for mom's need to heal, but also then really respecting, celebrating, and even ritualizing romance. How beautiful. What a lesson for those children. It's And it was a lesson for me, actually, (laughs) too, um, because I was not, you know, that could be a whole other talk, but I was not on board about NFP when we were engaged. I wanted to use contraception and whatever, and that's part of my book, Emily's Hope, um, my conversion story. But um, but I really learned what authentic love was through my husband. Um, and it's just, it's just an amazing thing. He would often um, want to bring the candlelights into the bedroom because um, in, I don't know, I forget, 15th, 16th century paintings, artists would paint a candle, a lit candle in a painting to signify uh, Christ's presence. So, um, yeah, so authentic love. Yeah, and that example, that reminder, that visual reminder, that beauty, that gentle glow that reminds you that at at the center of uh, a holy and happy marriage is is always Christ. How beautiful is that? Um, so step us into 
you guys are really kind of uber Catholics. You're sort of, um, you know, you're really well versed in the church's teachings, but you live it out and you live it out with a lot of joy. So can you break it down for us? Like, what is authentic love? What does that really look like, not only through the eyes of the church, but the way you're living it out? Well, we can look and see authentic love from our understanding of what Jesus went through. Jesus gave his entire life for us. He gave it freely. Nobody forced him. He gave it without reservation his entire life. Faithfully, he did what he said he was going to do. And fruitfully, he gave his life for us, the fruit of which we can now spend eternity in heaven with him. And, you know, Catholic Church teaching has always seen marriage as this way. One need only consider the marriage vows. You know, when you, when you vow to yourself during the marriage um, ceremony, there, the husband and wife are asked, have you come here freely and without reservation to give yourselves in the sacrament of marriage? That's free and total. Will you honor each other as man and life for the rest of your lives? That's faithful. Will you accept children lovingly from God and bring them up according to the law of Christ in his church? Well, that's the fruitful. Every husband and wife who has been married in a Catholic church has pledged to love freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully. Many spouses don't understand what these vows actually mean. And St. John Paul II took these beautiful Catholic church teachings and made them easier to understand uh, through his writings on the theology of the body. I love the biblical understanding of our bodies that through a study of scripture, starting with Adam and Eve, that John Paul, over the course of those five years in his Wednesday audiences, these teachings that we now call the theology of the body, that he was able to step us into God's design and the meaning that is embedded in our flesh, that our bodies actually mean something. And the catechism tells us that we're a unity of body and soul. And so both are who we are, and both are who we are made to be. And all indications are from the example of Christ and even the way we are made in terms of our complementarity that shows that at its root, the theology of the body, at least for me, when I synthesize it down through other people's synthesis, because I have certainly not read all that John Paul wrote on this, is that it all boils down to self-gift. Absolutely. Absolutely. And really, going back to Adam, he looked at his own body and then looked at Eve's body and said, wow, we go together. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And our (laughs) world obviously needs to understand this message better because um, it's very confused and, and, promoting things that are are not uh, God's will. No, absolutely right. There's just not this appreciation for, there's something greater than ourselves that, that helps us to discover who we authentically are. And when parents understand this, and I've said this before in other interviews too, that when the mother and the father understand who they are, and of course that's a lifelong process of discovery. We learn more and more through our growth and virtue to reflect the image and likeness of God. But when we are in the process of even knowing it, the graces that God brings to that, and in terms of showing children who they are, helps them to discover who they are when the parents are at least trying to reflect that. Absolutely. And and I I just want to touch on a point. Um, My husband gave the talk uh, when our kids were 
I think around the age of 13, when we saw that things were changing and that sort of thing. And when he, uh, when we, he was about to do it with our second oldest son, Ben, um, James said, well, we're going to go over to my studio and we're going to have this talk about the changes in your body. And he said, wait a minute, are we having the talk? <laughs> and, and James is like, well, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know what? I am not ready for that talk. (laughs) Ben said that. And then about six to eight months later, now remember he wasn't in school. So six to eight months later, he came to James and he said, I think I'm ready for that talk. Wow. And then three years later, when uh, James did the talk with Timmy, um, Ben said, Hey, can I come and listen in? I'd like to have a refresher. <laughs> <laughs> wow. so, so he was, you know, he understood he was not ready for that talk yet. And he was a very, he was a very innocent kid. Um, and he wasn't in school at the time. So it wasn't like there was any pressure on us to do it before he was ready. So when you, in terms of the free total faithful and fruitful. Could you just share with us some of the examples of how living into those uh, components of authentic love, give us some examples of ways they taught your children important lessons. I think one of the things we tried to do, or I tried to do when the kids were really small, two and three years of age, when I baked a fresh baked batch of cookies, chocolate chip cookies, um, (laughs) I would make them wait. And whether they were nine or three, I would make them wait two minutes. And you know you want the cookie warm, but, <laughs> but I would make them wait two, or two minutes at most. And it would help them to understand what self-control was at a very young age. And I didn't care how much they screamed and cried or whatever. When the two-minute timer went off, they could have the cookie, not before. Um, and it brought that to the conversation about um, when we talked about sex and about saving yourself for marriage and and that sort of thing and loving freely. And it we talked about with our kids that a lot of what is considered love these days is really just a reaction to a sexual urge and not controlling that urge and how it is important to practice with other things like television or um, social media nowadays, you know, I'm going to wait half an hour to go on social media or I'm going to wait to have that whatever. And also fasting, you know, we talk about fasting with the church, it's only Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, but I fast throughout the year and it talks about, okay, I'm going to have this meal at this time and I have to have the self-control to wait until that time. So um, our kids grew up with this idea of self-control. Whether they have all lived this in their adult lives, um, I can say I know at least one 
has because he's married now and he um, is quite the example in the film industry. Um, but he's a great example to his younger brothers. And we could have a whole conversation of, of, of conversations that Ben has had with people in the, um, in the film industry about the lifestyle he leads, not using contraception, waiting until marriage to have sex and, and, and all that stuff. So, wow. But, um, but yeah, that's so glad he's a light out there in the world of film. Oh, incredible. Amen. This is a great reason to encourage our kids to get into the arts, as you and James have done so beautifully. You bet, you bet. But loving totally, if I can go on with that, unless you have something to... Not at all. Go right ahead. This actually, the first time this kind of came up was when we were down in New Jersey, and we were driving by this huge um, adult you know, I don't even know what you call it, adult store, adult entertainment place. I hate that they use the word adult for that. Isn't it awful? Right. It was like an X-rated place where they had dancing girls and that sort of thing. And it was huge and you couldn't have missed it, you know? And Ben, Ben and Tim at the time would have been maybe 13 and 10, something like that. And, and of course we, we don't draw attention to it, but of course they can't help but see it. So then it's like, what's that place? X, 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 dancing girls and all this other stuff, you know? So it actually um, brought about a conversation about um, pornography and how men are visual. And, um, and this actually was right around that time that Ben said he wasn't ready, but then he was ready. So I think it, he probably would have been closer to 14 because he had had the talk, but Tim hadn't had the talk. And Tim was very bug-eyed as well. And the oldest son was looking and he kind of at that point knew what it was. And so because they noticed it, we said a prayer for all of those people inside. Um, Because you can't love totally when you're, you know, loving an image or trying to have a desire for an image, right? And so that opened up this wonderful conversation about, um, I mean, if you can call it wonderful, about pornography and, and how addictive it is and, and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I was amazed that Ben was so open to be listening to it. But you know what? It's the real world. And all of our kids, all of our adult children, we have to have that resistance when something pops on our screen. We have to exit out. Um, but it is it is a major, major um, evil of our um, society today that, that pornography is so accepted and, and it's really addictive. It's, and I know that, um, I think it's Matt Frad that says that Pornography is as addictive as crack cocaine. It does the same thing to your um, to your brain that crack cocaine does, and especially because men are visual, it's more difficult for them. But women have the issue as well. And oh yes, it's getting more and more widespread among young girls as well. And what a direct attack on authentic love to take something which is that men tend to be very visual in terms of stimulation and all of that. Um, I, I mean, we can even draw back to how women dress in church just to respect that visual sense in men to allow them to concentrate on God and not to be dressed in a distracting way. Um, that's, that can be a strength because within the confines of marriage, obviously, 
that visual sense can be very beautiful, the lighting of a candle, you know, and, and, all, and all of the beauty of the private expression of the marital embrace can be very lovely. I remember my daughter when she was about probably four, we were in the checkout line at the supermarket and right at her eye level was a Cosmo cover with a very scantily clad young woman and she said, her eyes bugged out and she said, mommy, why is she dressed like that? And I said, um, she's beautiful, isn't she? And she said, yes. And I said, and that would be okay if she were all alone with her husband at home. She started nodding her head, just intuitively getting it. And I said, but not so great out in public, right? And she went, no. I mean, she was so little and we'd never had any of these conversations before. But the moment she saw that woman with her body exposed, she was, she was not happy. She was disturbed by it. And I think of forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Because most women, most women don't realize that, you know, putting their bodies out like that, uh, it cheapens their bodies. Their bodies are beautiful um, and beautiful in the context of privacy. And, and this is this whole naked without shame that comes from the theology of the body. We were meant to be walking around without our clothes on because... Back in the day, with Adam and Eve, there was no, um, no sin, so there was no lust. And because we have lust, we have to now cover up and, and protect. But if it's, if it's James, I don't have to protect. I get into the shower and because I don't feel I need to protect myself from my husband. I know my husband is going to cherish me and my body and, and not be lustful. Beautiful. Yeah, really important the way this all trickles out. So free, total, what about faithful? Well, faithful is very interesting because we have internet now, right? And we have online relationships. And and first of all, I can't tell you how many single men try to add me as a friend on Facebook. And if they are Christian and are interested in in my publishing company, that's a different story. If they have you as a friend, like a a mutual friend, that's another story. But if they say, I like how your body looks or whatever, it's like, yeah, I know. You know, um, and I remember, I remember one time about 10 years ago, I was attending the production of one of my kids and I had my youngest son, I think, and my oldest son with me. And I am not a a raving beauty beauty. I, you know, I maybe look younger than my 60 years, but I oh, am it's not shameful how young you look, Ellen. It's not. Well, fair. yeah, <laughs> but I, I'm not, you know, this gorgeous beauty that, you know, whatever, but I do look younger. And this fellow who was doing the lighting, he, you know, he came up to me and he started talking to me and I had two kids with me. So my husband wasn't with me and it came, became very obvious. He started asking me information about myself and, and it it seemed very flirtatious. And what I have done is it has only happened a few times in the last 15 years, but what I have done is when I sense they're starting to, flirt with me, I start to talk about my husband, which is one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) I know. I love this technique. My my husband is just the most amazing man I have 
ever met. He is so, first of all, he is handsome, Second, <laughs> so creative and blah, 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 blah. And, and, you know, even now when he drives in the driveway, my heart still skips a beat. Well, I mean, they're speechless. <laughs> they don't know what, how, where to take this. So, um, but planting seeds too, and they start. start well, that's right. I want a woman that's going to talk about me when she's out, and other men. Absolutely, absolutely, and faithfulness goes beyond just the physical. I mean, that's obviously of utmost importance to be faithful um, physically to your spouse, but thought, word, and deed. You know, um, I was never comfortable when. Uh, any of my acquaintances or whatever talked about their husbands in a bad way. I just, I, you know, I would always try to steer the conversation because I wasn't the person that they should be talking to about that. They should be talking to their spouse. And so I, you know, I made it a point never to speak in a, um, a negative way about my husband to anyone except him. If I had a problem with him. <laughs> Um, but you know, we need to take this faithfulness to our whole bodies, or, you know, how we speak about our spouses and, and our kids' fathers. And, and I just want to point out too, that when that man was flirting you, with you, your children were there. Yes. However young they were, they must have, and I know that God would bless this. I just trust he is so good that you stepped up and expressed your deep loyalty and affection for your husband to someone who maybe couldn't understand that at that time. Children receive the fallout of those graces, however well they could literally understand it at the time or not. Those blessings really do help our families to grow. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. The best gift we can give our kids is to love authentically, love this way. Because really, when you think about it, our kids are the illustration, the walking around illustration of our love. And if we aren't living this authentic love, they can feel very separated. You know, um, I know my husband, who is a product of a divorce, he literally felt like, you know, if you put your hands together like this and I'm in the prayer posture. Mm -hmm. Yes. This is our, these are our children. This is our children representing um, husband and wife together in unity. When we're not living uh, authentic love, our kids can feel like the hands are way apart. You know what I mean? And it's, you know, even kids who are adults going through their parents' uh, divorce have told me it is a very painful thing. And so, um, and one instance I can talk about is when there was a friend of one of my sons who came and uh, visited our house and, and just, you know, we were playing games. I don't know what we were doing. It was dinner and whatever. And this friend later told my son, you know, you are very blessed to have parents who love each other because this person was from a divorced um, situation, like my husband. And, and he, my son said, oh, I know I am. I know. <laughs> so our kids do get it. They do get that. Yeah, I just want to make a side note, which is that for any of the homeschooling parents who are listening to this podcast, if you have suffered through a divorce, um, if things are going very badly in your marriage, 
please know that you are in our prayers and that we know that those of us who have been married a long time know that marriage goes through, at times, some pretty terrible ups and downs and that not every, not every marriage is able to stay together for one reason or another. And so we do understand that. But I think what this authentic love, like my grandmother and my dearest aunt, who was my godmother, both were abandoned by husbands with young children uh, as young wives and went through terrible, a terrible ordeal, but they never lost their sense of vocation. They never stopped praying for their husbands or honoring their husbands in front of their children. And so we can put the children first, which is very difficult. We can seek networks of support. This is another topic for another day. I just want you to know that our hearts are with you and that we're not saying that it's easy or that it's always possible. But those of us that are in intact marriages really need to double down. We really need to be completely free in our self-gift total, faithful, and we'll get to fruitful in just a moment. But but this is important. This is the most serious battle of our times, the battle against marriage and the family. And so this topic is something we can contemplate, we can offer to God in prayer, and see how he's calling us to live it out, whatever our state. Um, But uh, I think maybe this is a good time because you're talking about your children being the living image of your love for each other to talk about that bearing fruit that comes from a wholesome and authentic love. This is, this is where um, really it's, it's the most visual. Um, our marriage is, is the most visual when um, we have children uh, because they are the living representation of our love. Um, and just a side note, I also know some wonderful um, divorced women who are homeschooling their kids and um, they struggle because their, their uh, spouses abandon them. And we do pray for them. And um, it's not an easy situation to be in. But we have always welcomed children. And in fact, when I first met my husband, I said to him, this was probably the first time I met him, maybe the second. I said, so how many kids do you think you want to have? <laughs> and, and he said, oh, I don't know. Four or five. Well, he didn't run in the opposite direction, so that was really good. <laughs> Real indication. Yeah. But yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so we thought, you know, I thought ten was a nice round number, but you know, I figured I could work with four or five. <laughs> anyway, so we welcomed pregnancies, and when you're using NFP, it doesn't mean that every time you have relations, you have to be hoping and planning for a pregnancy, just that you're open. Um, And we did plan 11 pregnancies. Um, We have been pregnant 11 times with 12 babies and have lost seven through miscarriage and ectopic pregnancy, which is one of the health issues that I had. So we, we were open and we both kind of got the number we wanted, I think, because we have seven babies in heaven and five here on earth that we've had the privilege to raise. So, um, but it's interesting. And when you say fruitfully, I think back to, this is about 10 years ago, maybe 12, we're at the kitchen table. I was just going through menopause at the time. And, uh, our son, Tim, would have been maybe 15 at the time. And I don't know how the conversation came up. Maybe a friend of ours had just had a baby. And so Tim says, so when is our next baby coming? And I said, oh, um, you know, it kind of occurred to me that they were, you know, just assuming another baby would come. And so um, I said, well, um, 
I don't think we're going to be able to have any more because I'm, I'm going through a change now and that sort of thing. And the look of sadness mm. on his face, the look of disappointed just touched my heart deeply. Um, he just, you know, he had this sadness, you know, that he wasn't going to have any more siblings. And, and I have to tell you, that same sibling was there when our grand, he is going to be the godfather of my grandson, Timmy. And um, the look on his face when, you know, um, he found out that the baby was born and the, like, you know, all of our kids, whether they are practicing Catholics or not, are pro-life and have been very um, pro-baby, pro-life. And I think that's just instilled with them, even if they don't go to church anymore, it's something. But um, it was it was a beautiful thing for me to see. Uh, and I you know, it never even dawned on me to mention to the kids that, that I was going through menopause, right? But it's amazing how God provides those conversations too, because your child's own love and longing opened up a door for him to understand a little something about, again, about how our bodies work and different seasons of our lives. And then that that little sadness, God transformed into joy with this new announcement with Ben's son on the way. And now your beautiful grandchild that you can hold in your arms. I mean, it's just incredible the lessons that come from that authentic. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I and I have to hope for your family and mine and everyone who's got loved ones who have at least for a time left the church or are just not practicing their faith or are just not sure right now because they're under an awful lot of influences that being able to live into a family culture and to constantly be loved and blessed by that family culture that is free, total, faithful, and fruitful has to be, you know, in the, in the most beautiful sense possible, a little bit of a ticking bomb, you know, whether it comes withholding their own first child or in some other moment that God provides that grace. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, great hope for that. Any final thoughts for parents who um, maybe don't know how to have that talk with their kids? Or is there resources that you'd like to recommend? Um, you know, and we can put them in the show notes later if you want to do a little research and you and I can put our heads together. But we'll, but let's, uh, we'll put something in the show notes for this episode about how to get started. I can think offhand, we use uh, Theology of the Body for kids. Like it's a, it's a, um, you know, like a weekly thing you do with your children. Uh, I believe it's Ascension Press. Um, Theology of the Body for the middle grade ages and Theology of the Body for teens, all excellent programs that, you know, step by step take us through these teachings without judgment um, and we do the, the teen talk at the local high school, Catholic high school for the religion program. And not all of the kids are going to be accepting of the message, but a lot of them are. And it, it's an eye opener for them. And you and James do that talk together? Yes. Yes. How wonderful. Because they must be picking up just the, the clues or cues between the two of you that this is a happy, thriving marriage, that people who practice the church's teachings are not dour, frustrated, and shackled because they don't have their freedom of uh, all of this kind of sexual license that's promoted continuously to our children. Well, freedom is not free. Freedom is not freedom. Freedom is the ability to do what is right. 
and true and moral. That's true freedom. Right, exactly. To have that self-possession, which reflects all the way back to your talking about taking two minutes to wait before having a, a warm chocolate chip cookie, that self-possession that helps children to, to be able to know they can do it. They can resist. They're not just a mass of impulses. Yes, beautiful. All right, Ellen, thank you so much. This has been so rich and such a delight to have this conversation with you. Thank you for being here. Well, thank here. you. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate being here. Mm, yeah, and everybody check out Ellen at ellengable.wordpress.com. It'll be in our show notes as well. Uh, so happy to have Ellen with us today. And please do stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Hello, my homeschooling friend. I'm Celeste Behe, and this is Story Strands. Tell me, is there a personalized book on your child's bookshelf? I don't mean the kind of book that has something like Happy Birthday, Johnny Love Grandma written on the flyleaf. I mean the kind that's custom made with your child as the hero. Books like that are hugely popular. In fact, over a span of three years, the personalized children's book publisher Wonderbly experienced a sales increase of 294%. 294%! What is it about personalized kids' books that makes them so appealing? The answer can be found in a quote from writer and speaker Dale Carnegie. Carnegie said that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Now, if one's own name can mean so much to an adult, think of what it can mean to a child who is developing a sense of identity. It's no wonder that when a child is told a story in which he is the protagonist, the story will be more engaging, more relatable, and more edifying than any story that starts tugboats, puppies, choo-choo trains, or random humans. So, should you shell out 30 dollars for a mass-produced product that's been tweaked to include your child's name? Of course not. Instead, tell a personalized story of your own. Here's how to do it. Tip number one is a no-brainer. Simply substitute your child's name for that of the main character in the story of your choice. Easy, right? But please, choose a familiar story that you can tell without a book in hand so that you can maintain eye contact with your child during the telling. Tip number two. At bedtime, tell about the day's events in story format, focusing on your child's activities. Believe it or not, eating oatmeal, making the bed, and even doing arithmetic are really interesting as plotline elements. Bonus. Storytelling about the day's events can also help reinforce a daily routine. Tip number three. Does your child have a sidekick? If so, the story won't be believable unless the sidekick is included. My son's constant companion was a plastic one-legged orange ostrich figurine named Plucky. In any story I made up for my son, Plucky had to have an important role. After all, personalized stories are not about persons only. These three tips are obvious ways to personalize stories. Use them as jumping off points for your own creative ideas. The important thing to remember is that your child wants to see himself in the story you tell. 
I'm Celeste Behe, and this is Story Strands. That's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com, where you can get online courses for your grade school, middle school, and high school student. Learn from the experts and make your homeschooling easier. Be sure to leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. And we'll see you next time here on the Homeschooling Saints podcast.